On our last holiday in Egypt, a belated summer holiday a couple of months ago, uh, Nietzsche and I signed up for a boat trip to go and swim with dolphins in the Red Sea. Unfortunately, after a two-hour journey, we discovered that the dolphins hadn't been informed about our visit and uh, failed to show up. And so, we went a further hour to another place that they frequent, but again, the dolphins disappointed us. However, this was not the worst part of our trip. On the way back, the wind rose, and with it the boat, and also our stomachs. Along with quite a few others, we were rather badly seasick. Thankfully, we didn't take a camera, so I have no pictures to show you. (laughs) Even more thankfully, after a very, very long three hours, it's amazing how time stretches when you're not enjoying it, isn't it? Uh, we finally made it back to port. What a relief to stand on terra firma once more. Now today, as we are drawing to the close of our series in the book of Acts, which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, we read the dramatic account of a terrifying storm at sea, in which the passengers and crew of a ship experience not only the loss of their stomach contents, but also their ship and the very real risk of the loss of their lives. But in the middle of all this, one man did not give up hope. Instead, he gave a reassuring message of hope in their darkest hour to the crew and passengers on board the ship. He said, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. How could he be so sure? And how can you and I be confident in crisis? Whether it be a literal storm at sea, or some unexpected and sudden event that has come into our lives. Maybe this evening you are facing a personal shipwreck, a health crisis, a financial crisis, a marriage crisis, a family crisis. Have you given up hope? Or do you still have hope in the middle of the storm? The New Testament book of Hebrews, using a nautical term, describes a hope which the Christian has as an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6, verse 19. So, as we read this dramatic story of a storm and a shipwreck, I want to leave you, and focus particularly this evening, leave you with a question from an old hymn with which we will conclude. And the question simply is this, will your anchor hold? So, you need to find the story, or you may just want to listen, because it really is a dramatic story, but if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to it again in a moment, but if you turn to Acts chapter 27, it's page 1124 in the Pew Bibles. It's quite a long chapter, but it's such a wonderful story, so let's just listen to it uh, together as we read. Under arrest in Caesarea, facing very serious charges brought by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, Paul, an apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ, has taken the option open to any Roman citizen. He has appealed to Caesar. And so the Roman governor in Caesarea arranges for him to be taken to Rome, along with some other prisoners, to stand trial before the emperor Nero. So let's read what happens. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, 
about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become difficult and dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtain what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along, to the, shore of, along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cowder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Cytus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. 
For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You will need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Well, this is a wonderful story and it's God's word for us to focus on this evening. Let's just pray and ask God to help us as we seek to apply it to ourselves. Heavenly Father, thank you for this record written by Luke himself passenger on this ship thank you that you are the Lord as we've sung the Lord of heaven and earth of sea and storm and so we can have confidence if we're trusting in you the same God the apostle Paul trusted in so for those of us here this evening who are maybe in the middle of a storm in our lives and for those of us who won't be known to us may even face a storm this coming week or in the days that lie ahead may your word encourage us and may we know what it is to have true hope hope in the gospel hope in Christ in whose name we pray Amen in 1848 a man named James Smith published a book entitled The Voyage and Shipwreck of St Paul he was a very experienced sailor familiar with the Mediterranean And he verified the accuracy of this account that we have before us. Even down, he actually calculated in a storm with these winds, where would you end up starting from one place in Myra, where would you end up 14 days later? Right by the bay in Malta where the ship finally landed. And he concluded from this that this account was written by Luke himself. You'll notice that he says we right through the account, that he's there throwing the stuff overboard alongside Paul. Uh, Smith actually writes, No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts and less from actual observation. So, let's just have a little brief look, first of all, at the voyage and the shipwreck. Here's Paul going on this journey from Caesarea to Rome. It's about 2,000 miles journey. It would normally take about five weeks to get there. The centurion in charge has been commissioned to deliver Paul and his other prisoners, books them, along with his soldiers, of course, on a local ship which calls at various ports along the province of Asia Minor. 
At the first port, Sidon, we read that Julius, recognizing that Paul was no ordinary prisoner and was no danger of him running away or escaping, allow him to visit friends there who supply him and his two companions, Luke and this convert from Macedonia called Aristarchus, with provisions for the journey. The ship as it goes along is one of these small coastal ships that stops at every port along the journey. It's pretty slow. And so when they arrive at Myra, which is right on the tip of Asia Minor, Julius finds a larger ship. It's actually an Egyptian ship carrying grain from Alexandria up to Italy because the Romans were supplied with grain from Africa. And so he books them on that journey. And this is a much bigger ship that's capable of traveling on the open ocean, carrying grain and also lots of passengers. They've been known to carry up to 600 passengers from historical records. Uh, Kent Hughes, the American pastor, describes the kind of ship in question. It's quite helpful to know. He says the typical grain freighter was 140 feet long, 36 feet wide, and bore a 33-foot draft. It was a sturdy ship, but in high seas it had definite disadvantages. It had no rudder like a modern ship, but was steered by two great paddles extending from the stern. It only had one mast, which was a great square sail, and chief among its drawbacks was that it could not sail into the wind. And that's the reason, as they set off, the going is very slow. They struggle over, finally, to the island of Crete, and they put into a place called Fair Havens, which literally means good harbour. In fact, the locals were exaggerating. It wasn't a good harbour. The nearby town of Lassia was very small, And what was clear to everyone on board, but particularly the centurion and the captain, was that they were not going to make it to Italy before close season. Because after November, ships stopped sailing because of the converse winds for three months. And it was already past the Jewish fast, which at this time, this is AD 59 by our later dates, October the 5th. They're already well into the season. They can't possibly make it. They're going to have to stay and winter on the island of Crete. But there is a much better port with much nicer facilities, 40 miles along the coast of Crete, a place called Phoenix. So they've got a problem. Should they stay where they are and play it safe? Or should they make a run just 40 miles and maybe 36 hours journey to get to Phoenix where they'll be much more comfortable and the ship will find a much better harbour? And so what they do, they call a conference. And it's interesting, in this conference, they obviously call the centurion, the captain, the owner of the ship, and they also asked Paul to come along and give some advice. Now, Paul was not a professional seaman, but he had a considerable experience of sailing. It's been estimated, you know, you've got these air air miles, you know. Well, if Paul had got sea miles, he had about 3,500 at the moment. Uh, And we also know that he'd been in three shipwrecks already, and he'd even spent a day and a night in the open sea. So it's a a pretty experienced traveller. And that's the reason why he gives his advice. It's not some kind of prophecy. He simply says, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Verse 10. But, as often happens, he's in a minority. The majority uh, opinion prevails. And so they set out, just running up the coast, And as they set out, there's a nice gentle breeze, and everybody says, ah, that Paul is a pessimist, you know, he got it wrong, you know, never mind. But suddenly, 
the wind changes in direction and force. Hurricane force, literally the Greek is typhonic. They just managed to make the lifeboat secure as they pass a small island called Cauda. But then they're driven out into the open sea with this tremendous storm that arises. They pass ropes under or around the ship, it's not quite clear which. The sailors are terrified, they'll be driven down south onto the sandbanks off the coast of Libya. And they do all they can to avoid the fate which had befallen many ships and seafarers in the past. Battered by the mountain high waves, they begin to throw cargo, then the ships tackle overboard, they put anchors out to try and slow the ship down, but all to no avail, and eventually they face a hopeless situation. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And it is in this hopeless situation that Paul stands up and gives his message of hope. Paul was very human. He couldn't resist saying, men, you should have listened to my advice. (laughs) But I don't think he's just doing it, you know, to say, you know, there are annoying people who always say if they prove right, I told you so. Uh, But rather, I think what he's trying to do here is to say, listen, men, I got it right before, so listen to me now. But now, he says, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, this is not wishful thinking on Paul's part. It's not the power of positive thinking. He says, I can assure you this is true because last night I had a visit from an angel from heaven who gave me a message of hope. And what I want to suggest, just to help us and to to hang our thinking on this evening is uh, that as we study what Paul said to them, it reveals that he had three anchors of hope. Three anchors of hope. Anchor one is this. He belonged to God. He says the angel who appeared to him was the angel of the God whose I am. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I am God's personal possession. From time to time in Charlotte Chapel, we sort out all the lost property that you leave. It is amazing what members of Charlotte Chapel leave in their pews and in the church. You would be just amazed. And it's impossible usually to find out whose umbrella it is, whose coat it is, even whose Bible it is. Occasionally we can identify them and return them to the person who'd lost them. But sometimes they're not even aware that they're missing. So as we return the Bible, we say, here's your Bible. By the way, what have you been reading recently? But if it's something more valuable, like a wallet or a purse, or a ring or a piece of jewellery, or something useful, a set of keys, which happens from time to time, then people miss these things and they come looking for them. Now I simply want to say this. God does not have any of his possessions in lost property. No, he seeks and finds lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons, lost daughters, and when he finds them, he values them, and he looks after them. And he doesn't have any of his people that he failed to spot were missing. In one of his letters, Paul reminds his fellow Christians, he says, you've been purchased by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 
19. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. When Christ died for you, he redeemed you. He bought you back. Now you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. And writing to Christians from a Gentile background, the Apostle Peter reminds them they are valued by God. For his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid a great price to redeem them. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says, For you know, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And what God values are not things, but people. As the Apostle John writes in his letter, 1 John 3, verse 1, People who are made sons and daughters of the living God, who enter into relationship with God as their personal Heavenly Father. He says, How great is the love the Father has showed to us, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, in the darkness, on a heaving ship, as the waves are mounting up, as everyone has given up hope, Paul tells the terrified crew and passengers he has received a message from an angel of God whose I am. You see, God had not mislaid Paul. Paul didn't offer up some kind of prayer and God says, Gosh, there you are, Paul, down on the ship in the Mediterranean. I wondered where you were. He's known where he is all along. And if you belong to Christ, if you've been purchased by Christ, valued by him, loved by him, he knows where you are. I don't just mean physically, he knows you're in Charlotte Chapel on Sunday evening, on St. Andrew's Day. I mean, he knows where you are in your circumstances. You belong to him. He's not mislaid you somewhere. Forgotten about you. God had not mislaid Paul. And suddenly on receiving an emergency prayer signal from him in the middle of the Mediterranean, had realized he was about to drown and needed help. No, Paul belonged to God. He was never out of his sight. He could have sung as we have done. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart because it's based on what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, 16. And I simply want to say, if you're going to have hope in a world that often seems hopeless, if you're going to have hope in the storm that rises up in your life that you never anticipated, maybe this evening you're in a storm in your life that a week ago was totally unthinkable. And if you're going to have hope in that situation, you need to know, I belong to God. I'm his possession. He values me. He loves me. He cares for me. He's not caught in the wares. When there is darkness all around you, and you cannot see God, it does not mean God cannot see you. For as the psalmist reminded himself, that wonderful Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for the night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. So this is the first anchor. It's an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6 says, it goes up into heaven, into God's presence. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is left. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Not just in the crisis. He lives and pleads for you. And Jesus speaking to his father, as Rodney reminded us, 
He says, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. He is mine. She is mine. Now, I simply ask you, do you have that assurance? Because if not, you're in a hopeless situation because circumstances will, will wipe you out. They'll bring you low. In the storm, you can say I belong to God. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn, who knew a lot about storms and shipwreck. He came to faith in the most terrible storm. It awakened his conscience anyway. He puts it in one of his other hymns. Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. I belong to God. That's the anchor, the hope. Now, once that anchor is fixed, and and unless you've got that fixed, really, you've no hope. And I simply urge you to run to Christ and seek him if you don't have that hope. But when you've got that anchor fixed, there is a second one which should be true for every Christian, which was true for the Apostle Paul. Anchor two, look at his words. He also served God. Paul says the angel who appeared to him was not only an angel of the God whose I am, but also an angel of the God whom I serve. If you were here this morning when Colin was preaching from the previous chapter, Paul described to the king and his court how on that day when he met Jesus, he was commissioned by him. This is what Jesus said to Paul. Now get up and stand on your feet. It's roped in Damascus, blinded by the light. There's Jesus. Paul realizes he's gone wrong. Just totally bombshell. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as of a witness of what you've seen of me. What I will show to you, I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have sanctified my faith in me. Acts 26, 16 and 18. Now, now do you see this? Very important to see this. Paul started in Christian service the day he met Christ. Some of you young people maybe think, ah, well, that's all right for me. He's the pastor, you know. He's been to Bible college and he studied the Bible at university and he's been a Bible translator. So, no wonder he's in the service of God. Listen, as soon as you come to Christ, you're enlisted in his service. You belong to Christ, but he's got a purpose for you. He's got a plan for you. He's given you gifts. He wants to use you in his service. And Paul now, he's saying this, 25 years later, he has 25 years of unbroken service. And he didn't step out of service just because he was a prisoner of Rome. He didn't say, oh dear me, I've been arrested now. Well, that's me finished. I'll have to just wait until things brighten up. You know, always look on the bright side of things. No, he continues in service despite being falsely imprisoned. It is as a prisoner he continues with the commission that God gave him to be a witness. So he proclaims the good news of Jesus to kings and rulers, to anyone who will listen, to the soldiers chained to him, a captive audience if there ever was one. Now, if you are a footballer and break your leg, you cannot be an active member of your team. But if you are a Christian and break your leg, or lose your job, or your spouse, or your health, or whatever, you are still on active service in the Lord's service. And if against your advice, a ship's owner, a captain in a Roman centurion decide to set out on a dangerous and stupid journey just because they want to have three months in a nice, more comfortable place, 
You don't get in a huff and refuse to get off the bench when you are called to service and say, I told you so, and I'm going to sit this one out and let you suffer. No. Paul didn't do that, did he? You are still in the Lord's service. Let me say this. Living in a fallen world, suffering the consequences of bad decisions by fallen people. Because we live in a fallen world. You're influenced by what other people do. We're all influenced by what the bankers have done at the present time. I don't understand it, but suddenly, you know, we're all in trouble financially. That's part of living in a fallen world. You may have lost a lot of money out of it. I was thinking to a couple in Ibiza who've lost an absolute fortune. Everything. Put it in an Icelandic bank to make more interest. (laughs) Still waiting to get it back. And if they ever will get it back. You see, you still continue in service despite the mistaken actions of others. Some of you have family who've made decisions on your behalf which are bad decisions and you didn't make them but you suffer with them. You're not exempt from them. But it doesn't mean you sit back in a upset and say, well, you know, my dad did this or my husband or my wife did this and therefore, you know, you know, there's nothing which I can do really and I don't know what's happening here. No, you continue in service. Warren Wiersbe says, we sometimes suffer because of the unbelief of other people. And if you're on the heaving decks of a stricken ship, and it looks about it's going to go down with all hands, including you, you are still in the Lord's service, despite the painful consequences you may suffer. Through it all, Paul is and remains a servant of God. This was his second anchor which gave him hope. He served God. Now, let's be personal again. You have that anchor to give you hope. You see, it's possible to belong to God, but not to be in active service. Maybe it's those circumstances we've talked about that you found yourself in that maybe weren't even your fault that caused you to resign your commission. Or maybe you just decided that you didn't like what serving the Lord meant. But maybe, think for a moment, maybe God has sent a storm and a shipwreck into your life to get you back into, onto track. Back into his service. Now, several hundred years before, another servant of God also found himself in a life-threatening storm on the same sea. His name was Jonah. God had used him greatly in the past as his servant and witness. He'd been a great preacher. He'd had a great message to bring to people of Israel. He was really popular, you know. Pastor of a big church like Charlotte Chapel, something like that, you know. But then he received a fresh commission to go to another city which he didn't like and to people that he hated and bring them hope. And so he said, I'm out of here. I'm resigning my commission. So he deliberately went down to Joppa, one of the other ports of the Mediterranean, and he looked for a ship going in exactly the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish, which is like the Shangri-La of the day, you know, Tarshish. And this, people think it's in, on the southern coast of Spain, you know, somewhere. I'm going, to, I'm going to do beach ministry instead of Nineveh ministry with those people out there, you know. And so he gets on the ship. It's a wonderful story. You know what he does? He goes down below deck. And he falls asleep. And he thinks, that's me, I'm out of here. And he thought he'd escaped. But God sent a violent storm to wake him up. In fact, if you read the Greek Old Testament versions of the story, it actually says that the the ship's captain was looking for him and he heard him snoring. He was that sound asleep. You know, it's a great encouraging text from the Greek Old Testament for every preacher, but we won't go there. (laughs) 
And then Jonah comes on deck and he hears these pagan sailors, terrified, praying to their powerless gods and lifeless idols. And he knows the real answer and he says, I'm a worshipper of the Lord, the God of heaven who made the earth and sea, and I'm running away from the Lord. And he finally faces up to the fact he's tried to opt out of service. And he's catapulted into the sea. And much to his surprise, he's catapulted back into service. Back on track to his God-given destination in the stomach of a great fish. Now, maybe today, in the storm, in the crisis, God is calling you back into his service. Can you stand up and say, the God whom I serve is also the God, the God whom I trust and build, the God to whom I belong, let's get this right, is the God whom I serve. Serving the Lord where you are, right now if you're a Christian, in that job, in that family, in that difficult situation that's not of your making. So we have these two anchors. He belonged to God, he served God, and from that came a third anchor. The third anchor, he trusted God. Now, you need to notice this, very important. Until the angel appears to him after 14 days, listen, I spent three hours being seasick. What 14 days is like, it's just unbelievable. I have no idea. You, you know, if you get seasick, you just feel like you're going to die, don't you? Yeah? And you just can't wait to get back. And he thinks, I'm going to go down. Who knows? He's not sure how things will turn out. In fact, he's already said there will be a great loss of life, which shows that, he's, that what he was saying was advice, not prophecy, because he was wrong. Now, in general terms, he knows that he's not gonna, he's gonna get to Rome, because the Lord himself, not even an angel that appeared to him, Acts 23 verse 11, you remember in the series, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But he doesn't know how he's gonna get to Rome. Here he is in the middle of this storm, he knows, I'm gonna get to Rome. Will it be in this ship? Or another ship? He's already had a day and a night swimming in the open sea. Maybe he's just going to go for another swim. Who knows? Maybe the descendants of the great fish that swallowed Jonah are still around waiting for a fresh passenger. Paul doesn't know until the Lord tells him. Only then can he have a message of hope, not for himself, but for his fellow passengers. As he tells them, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. You see, trusting God is always about trusting God's word. Say to people, do you trust God? Oh, yeah, I think so. Pretty vague, isn't it? I trust God, you know, it'll all work out, you know, inshallah. No, trusting God means trusting God's word. And so what do you need to do if you're a Christian, if, you're, if you belong to God, if you're serving God? You know what you need to do? You need to be listening to what God's going to say to you in those circumstances. That's why I'm, I'm delighted we're going to read through the Bible in a year. It's not just a mechanical exercise, but it'll do us a power of good. When the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, great prophet, proclaimed God's word, he stood up literally one day in Israel, living in apostasy, terrible king, going down the tubes, and God was concerned for his people, and he stood up and he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain in this land for three years. Now, the NRV translates, Before whom I stand as, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve. 
Now, it amounts to the same thing. It's a kind of metaphor. But I love the literal Hebrew because it reminds you that the servant is someone who stands in God's presence. He doesn't sit or lounge in his presence. But he stands. He stands to attention. He's a servant, waiting by the master, listening, waiting for his instructions. And that old hymn used to sing, I am listening, Lord, to thee, what hast thou to say to me? So he's Paul for 14 days. I think he's been listening to God. You know, Lord, what do you want to say in this situation? Maybe I'll be the sole survivor. But no, finally an angel brings a message of salvation for Paul. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. Remember what I told you before. Nothing's changed. It's okay. And for his fellow passengers. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. F.F. Bruce comments. Great Scottish New Testament scholar. Not only would Paul himself survive to stand before the emperor, the lives of his shipmates were also to be spared for his sake. The world has no idea how much it owes in the mercy of God to the presence in it of righteous men. You want more evidence? Read about Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. For five righteous men, will you spare the city? So here's Paul, his role has changed. He's no longer a prisoner. He's the captain giving instructions to everybody. He warns them, everything must be fully obeyed. You must obey God's word in detail if you're to be saved. So when the, when the sailors decide they're going to make a run for it in the lifeboat, Paul sees what's happening. He says to the centurion, if they go, the promise falls. The centurion says, okay, cut the boat loose. It's not a very smart idea, humanly speaking. Lifeboat's gone now. Uh, and as they approach land, here's Paul in control of the situation because he has confidence in God's word. He trusts God. He gives them further encouragement. He's not just one of these super spiritual Christians who says everything will be fine. He says, it's time you ate something, you guys. You know, we're going to go to land now, so let's have a good meal. Uh, and, and you can imagine, they're in the middle of all this storm. The storm's still battering around, you know, and they're, they're going to go, they're going to run into this island. And there's Paul saying, Grace, you know, it's great, isn't it? And and they eat, and then they throw the remaining grain into the sea. Finally, they see a bay with a sandy beach, and they raise the foresail, and they try to run the boat ashore, only for it to stick on a sandbank. And the stern begins to be pounded into pieces, and the soldiers, fearing the prisoners are about to escape, and if that happened, they would be forfeiting their own lives if they let them go. They're about to kill them, but they're restrained by Julius, and the centurion orders those who can swim to jump overboard to make for land, and if you can't swim, he says, grab a piece of plank or a piece of the ship. And so everyone, all 276 people, somebody counted, probably when they were doling the food out, I'd imagine, or like Charlotte Chapel, you know, doing a census, you know, just as the storm's going on, let's count you all off, you know. And they, and they make it finally to shore on the island of Malta to what is uh, now called St. Paul's Bay. There's a lovely picture on the screen for those who can see it. My uh, 17th century Dutch artist, Ludolf Backhuysen. It's a lovely picture of the rescue of the ship. You see, the third anchor, trusting God, held fast. God kept his promise. God kept his word. Daryl Buck in his commentary on X says, those who listen and follow the message of Paul experience deliverance, a symbol of what his message also brings. Paul is the exemplary witness and epitome of faithfulness. He is the one who trusts in God. So, personal again, do you trust in God? 
Do you trust in his word? I mean, really, unless you spend time in this word, hearing this word, you're never going to hear from God. Because that's how God has spoken. He takes his word and applies it to us. Have you believed in his word, the word of the gospel? Have you believed in his word, his son Jesus Christ, who was the word who became flesh? Have you believed in the word of the gospel that Christ died for you to save you, not from the sea, but from your sin? And to give you life, not just to rescue you, but to give you eternal life by his resurrection from the dead. And today, even as we're praying in the vestry beforehand, today it may be that through a storm in your life, God is calling you, inviting you, urging you to put your trust in him. You see, it's more important than being saved from the storm. You know, one of the saddest things I read about this story is, there were 276 people on the ship. As far as we know, there are only three Christians. Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. There is no record that any of the other 273 put their faith in Jesus Christ. They were safe from the storm. And when they got on the beach there in Malta, we'll see the conclusion next week with our series, the last chapter of Acts. We don't read that they all fell down in worship and formed the church and, and came to faith in Christ. You see, it's possible to be saved from the storm. It's possible that the finances may turn this week and they might get your money back from the bank in Iceland. It's possible that your marriage may come together. It's possible that that circumstance that you're worried about blows over and maybe next week you won't even be here because you think, well, it's all sorted out now. I'll go back again when there's a problem. No, it's really sad because what God wants to save you from is something far more important than a storm at sea. He wants to save you from your sin and he wants to give you new life in Christ. Now, we're almost finished, but let me say one thing in conclusion. Because I want to correct what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking, superficially, that this story teaches us that Christians always survive shipwrecks and that a Christian is never, ever lost at sea. But that is not true. No, all Christians, unless Christ returns first, will die in some way. If not at sea, then maybe at home. If not in a ship, then maybe in a hospital bed. Many years later, the Apostle Paul is back in prison, back in Rome, and he writes a final letter to his young colleague, Timothy. No angel has appeared to assure him that he's going to get through this one. No. He knows he's facing execution. Condemnation. So he writes about his future death. Sister Timothy, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith. The service on earth is finished. It's the end. But he doesn't believe, as most do, that where there's life, there's hope. No, he knows that as a Christian, where there's death, there's hope. Future hope. See what he says? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Soon after this was written, he was taken outside. Tradition is almost certainly correct. Taken outside the city of Rome, and the privilege of a Roman citizen, he wasn't crucified. An executioner's sword took his head off. Paul knows 
that the anchor of hope that held him on earth will be hauled up to heaven and he with it into God's eternal presence forever. Now, do you have that assurance? That final assurance? Will your anchor hold? Let's pray together. As we bow together, we've almost finished. We're going to sing that hymn in a moment, but let's just focus on what God has said to us this evening. Maybe you don't have hope in Christ. You've never put your trust in Him. Maybe you're in a storm and difficulty and God has brought you here or allowed that to happen so that you might turn to Him. Take the opportunity this evening while you have it. Because when the storm is gone, you may well just drift away. Put your trust in Christ tonight. Turn from Him. Turn to Him from your sin. Trust in Christ as your Saviour. And as we trust in Him as Saviour, we also acknowledge Him as Lord. Maybe you're a Christian who's sitting on the bench. Opted out of service. God has sent the storm to get you back on track. Still got a plan for you. Still wants to use you. You also need to repent. Call out to the Lord. He still knows you and loves you. Values you. To earn that assurance, turn to him and receive the prodigal's welcome back home. And many of us, perhaps even this evening, who know the Lord, need that word of assurance that God hasn't forgotten us or left us in lost property somewhere. But he loves us, values us, knows what we're going through. Even in the darkness, he sees us. So thank him for that. Lord, you are the Lord, heaven and earth, sea and sky. Your son is the saviour. Saviour of all who call on him. And we thank you that you know us and love us and care for us. And we have hope, not only in this life, but hope for eternity, eternal hope. So fill us with great joy this evening in that assurance. As we go from here... And may that be so apparent that people ask us the reason for the hope that we have within us in spite of our circumstances and help us to be ready then like Paul to give an answer. So thank you for your living word and for your son who lives forever, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever.